Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Ottawa is preparing its next federal budget, and as is the tradition, the C.D. Howe Institute has issued its shadow budget, fiscal policy recommendations for how to move forward in this ever-changing world. And the Institute has calculated the potential impact of COVID-19 on the economy and has some suggestions as to what the federal government should do. But my first question to CEO Bill Robson is, will he have to revisit his impact assessment and his recommendations? It is, as uh, economists are notorious for saying, a bit early to tell the um, news about the spread of the virus and the potential economic impact was just beginning to really penetrate as we were putting this thing to bed. Um, And so we looked at the baseline forecast and we looked at what some other experts were saying about the likely impact. And we thought probably in the baseline, what we should anticipate is that there's going to be a hit to the economy uh, in 2020. Uh, But at the time we were putting this together, and I still think I might say this today, uh, we thought that probably the right baseline was to have a hit that would last a couple of quarters. So that's partly that demand is down because people are concerned and people are cutting back on some of their activities. It also reflects a little bit of the supply side impact with supply chains being disrupted, travel, uh, and, and potentially also people getting sick or being worried about getting sick. But the baseline seemed to us to make sense to be one where we come back from that. Uh, And luckily at the moment, it seems as though the uh, number of new cases around the world has leveled off somewhat. Uh, So I hope that that will still be the case. Uh, If it's not the case, then clearly a government that's in the short run not very concerned about its bottom line uh, would not feel very constrained about letting the bottom line go a bit more into the red. So if the predictions of a cut of about 0.3%, you know, 30 basis points to Canada's economy through the course of the first and second quarters, and your expectation of being able to make that up in in 2021 or so, does the government need to engage in measures in this upcoming budget that addresses what we're presently dealing with now, or does it need to be a document that focuses further down the road? I think it makes sense for a federal budget to focus further down the road because it is kind of the definitive statement of the government's fiscal strategy over the long haul. And one of the difficulties I think that this government has faced already is a bit of a sense that it gets blown off course by events a bit easily. Now, this is an unusually significant and uh, somewhat frightening event. Um, That said, though, by the end of a four or five year uh, window, you ought to be able to see your way clear. Uh, Because if you can't, then a lot of these reassuring things we're hearing about how federal finances are in good shape, that the the country is fundamentally sound, uh, none of that really holds together. Uh, The other thing that I think it's worth saying, and we were responding to late breaking news in our shadow budget, but having seen what's developed since then, Um, There are various types of things that governments uh, can do here. We've seen central banks already react with an interest rate cut. Now, that's clearly about uh, demand. It's about spending. It's about activity. It's about confidence. Uh, The federal government has some tools that it can use in that area as well. And some people are uh, talking about measures. We've seen a little bit of this overseas as well. Uh, Temporary tax cuts, certain types of things that you can do on a broad uh, base. But some of the things that the federal government can do in this area are targeted and uh, not very expensive. But if you think of uh, some of the 
constraints in healthcare delivery, some of the supplies that we need, uh, some of the uh, short-term help that provinces may need with testing, with uh, accommodating people who are getting sick. Um, that sort of thing doesn't necessarily cost a whole lot of money, and it can make a big difference um, in a in a provincial government where they're wrestling their healthcare uh, costs all the time. If the federal com government comes along and says, "We've got some funding for you." Uh, to direct into this area. I think it just helps people move uh, quickly. And that's not uh, really so much about the demand side of the economy. That, that's about the supply side of the economy. In the long run, uh, we're clearly uh, going to worry first and foremost about people's health, economic impact of that. If people are sick, they can't work. We certainly hope that they're sick, not so sick that they don't recover. Um, but those things, if the federal government focuses its effort in some of those areas, then uh, demand kind of takes care of itself as the fear of the disease ebbs and as we get it under control and the supply side hit to the economy, which really matters, our productive capacity uh, now and in the future uh, takes less of a hit. So I think it makes sense for the federal government to be thinking about those areas. Uh, they are high impact. They're not necessarily very expensive. And they are things that fiscal policy can do, which monetary policy, you know, it's not just that monetary policy might be running out, out of ammunition with interest rates very low. Uh, central banks can't do anything to cure people, but fiscal policy can put some of that infrastructure in place. So it's your recommendation that we would see some tax, we need to see some tax relief for healthcare related costs through a lower threshold for the medical expense tax credit. That would be something you'd recommend regardless as to whether or not we are wondering if our beer is making us sick. Yeah. Yes, that is something that I think uh, would would address a bit of an important unfairness in the tax system. Um, as a general principle, uh, you would like the tax system to be taxing people on the income tax system to be taxing people on discretionary income. Now, in Canada, we're a little bit fuzzy about that. Um, you used to get a deduction for the cost of raising your children. That's now become a credit. Uh, there are various other types of things that aren't quite as straightforward as they uh, could be. But the key point is um, if, if there's a uh, expense that you're making as a matter of necessity in order to live, uh, that's not the same as a expenditure that's discretionary, that's adding to your enjoyment of life, like uh, travel or you know a, a bigger screen TV, that type of thing. And medical expenses to me very much fall into that category. We have a very odd system right now where your expenses have to exceed a certain threshold of income and a certain threshold amount. Um, but for people who have serious ongoing medical expenses, um, we have things like the disability tax credit, but at a very basic level, we're just uh, a bit grudging in recognizing those expenses when it comes to people's uh, daily costs of living. And as a result, you can end up with odd inequities where one person who's healthy and another person who's uh, not as healthy, they can be next door neighbors, they could have identical discretionary incomes to enjoy life, and yet the tax system isn't treating them well, uh, isn't treating them equally, and the, the less healthy person therefore has less uh, after-tax income. So one of the things that we're saying in this shadow budget is, let's not get rid of it entirely, uh, some of these things you do incrementally, but uh, be a bit more generous in recognizing people who have medical expenses, because that is not the same as, as I say, buying a bigger screen TV or having an extra meal out. These are expenses that people uh, have no choice about, uh, and therefore we think the tax system ought to be a bit more generous in recognizing them and not taxing people on them. So regardless as to whether or not we're talking about the crisis that coronavirus 
coronavirus has created or an individual's personal uh, health situation, setting that aside, this suggestion falls under the Improving Canadians' Opportunities and Well-Being category, of which there are two other items you've recommended here, including raising the GST rate on transportation fuels and eliminating the aviation fuel tax. It sounds like that is another one of those existential crises that Canadians are dealing with the environment. It's a slightly mischievous suggestion for us to have it in the shadow budget, and uh, it's a bit offered in a in a mischievous spirit. I find the disconnect between a lot of what uh, we hear uh, and what we actually do in this area to be quite distressing. There's a very strong commitment, verbally at any rate, on the part of governments uh, and especially the federal government to do something about reducing Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but they are facing at the at ground level a whole lot of opposition, uh, and it might be just that short-sighted people uh, don't want to pay extra tax and don't really care about the future. It might be that they're skeptical that what Canada does is going to matter all that much. They might be skeptical about some of what they hear about uh, greenhouse gas emissions and global warming more generally. But whatever is causing it, uh, it's clear that there's a bit of a disconnect between rhetoric and what governments are actually doing and as or are able to do. And as a result, they're going into areas that are really quite troubling. They're going into all these areas of industrial policy, special regulations that affect different sectors in different ways. And every economist and a lot of environmentalists who like the idea of just having a, a CO2 related tax that affects every uh, consumption decision uh, that people make, they, they like that approach because it's a far less damaging to the economy as well as being more transparent way of going at it. And that's not the way that uh, Canada is uh, ending up going. So what this suggestion is doing is saying, if we're really serious about this, let's put our money where our mouths are. And the reason that the GST is attractive is that one of the big concerns that you have about uh, putting carbon taxes, uh, CO2 related taxes on more generally is on competitiveness. Uh, aviation fuel, for example, is a, a, an awkward tax to levy because what it does is it induces airplanes to load up on fuel where it's cheaper, where there's less tax, which probably involves them flying more uh, and flying with more fuel in their tanks uh, than they would have otherwise. If you have a value-added type approach, uh, you're not going to be quite as directly going after the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. It's not quite a purist thing. But it's very straightforward to uh, implement. It's it's easy for our current tax system to handle, and it gets rid of some of those competitiveness concerns. So what we're arguing in the shadow budget is uh, you can do this if you're really serious and you can do it in a way that's less distorting to the economy, less damaging to Canadian competitiveness, uh, but it would involve a charge that's a little bit in people's faces. And so, as I say, it's a, it's a suggestion offered not in the belief that the finance minister is likely to take up on it in the 2020 budget, but as a bit of a challenge to Canadians generally to say, if you're really serious about this, if you think we need to do something, uh, here's something that we actually could do. And uh, it would be less distorting, it'd be less damaging to competitiveness. We know how to make this work. Uh, so let's uh, see if people are actually ready to put their money where their mouths are. We've talked about this in the past as well, uh, the tax treatment uh, for RRSPs and TFSAs. You've got recommendation on that front to be a little more generous. Yes, there's a very uh, important uh, gap in Canada between uh, people uh, in the, the federal public sector, particularly, and this goes for MPs as, as well as uh, federal public servants who have 
great retirement security. Uh, they're accruing pension wealth that's far higher than what the average uh, a person can can save in an RRSP uh, is allowed to do, let alone what the person actually has the capacity to do. And these are defined benefit pension plans, which are very nice for the participant because they guarantee you an annuity. Um, in the case of the federal plans, it's indexed to inflation for your life. So if you retire with one of those, uh, you have a very relaxed outlook compared to the outlook for somebody who is saving in an RRSP. Uh, has just seen a whole uh, lot of uh, loss of, of their savings as a result of this uh, market meltdown that we've had uh, just recently. Um, and, and you're constrained about topping it up. And if you start to save late in life, uh, you face various types of limits. And then once you're retired, there are various rules that apply to you that make it difficult for you to be confident that your savings are going to last uh, as long as you want them to. So at the margin, there are a lot of things that the federal government can do. Now, I do want to give credit where it's due. They've recently put some ideas out and, and made some um, movement to allow uh, for more flexible annuitization, for example, uh, and, and other measures that are, make it possible for people to uh, be a bit more uh, tailor their retirement savings to their particular circumstances uh, after they're drawing them down. Uh, but in general, uh, the federal government's treatment of, of uh, people who don't work for the federal government in this area is not at all generous. And we think it's appropriate and uh, for them to uh, allow people to save more, uh, increase access to TFSAs, a bit more flexibility in retirement, and certainly less uh, demands that you should start to draw your income down as early as you're now required to and in as large amounts as you're now required to. I think all of these things make sense uh, in a population that's uh, getting older, uh, where there's a lot of concern about retirement security. And whereas we've just seen in the markets, uh, you can't necessarily uh, count on, you know, sort of a 4% real return plus inflation every year uh, in and out on, on your investments. So I hope that they'll look seriously at this. The fiscal cost of it is not enormous. And the ability that it would give uh, a lot of Canadians to plan better for their retirement and to live with more confidence in retirement would be quite significant. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a bit of a win-win all around. Also giving the federal government credit where credit is due, your recommendation is something they've already been looking at, and that's requiring suppliers of digital services to Canadians to pay GST, HST. A lot of blowback on that suggestion coming on multiple fronts, not the least of which is fears that we have provisions under the USMCA that would give the Americans the ability to fight back in other areas. How likely do you see it as this recommendation in the shadow budget being adopted? I think partly here it's a matter of uh, just encouraging people to think about the level playing field issue uh, and, and, and building up a little bit more acceptability for the idea that we ought to tax all of these things more even-handedly. The problem is at the moment that um, people are used to thinking of certain of these things as effectively kind of free at the point of consumption. Uh, and the internet has been like that a lot of the time, things that you get, digital services that you're able to download or stream. Um, but uh, it does create a fundamental uh, competitiveness problem for the Canadian suppliers who uh, have to uh, charge a sales tax on these things versus the foreign ones that don't. I don't mean to make light of the administrative problem involved here. Uh, a lot of the individual amounts are quite small. Uh, it can be very cumbersome to remit 
very small amounts of money on very small uh, individual uh, services, uh, things that you might stream, for example. Um, but we do have to tackle this over time. It's increasingly uh, important as a means of, 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 of receiving entertainment and other services. Uh, certain provinces have decided to tackle it. Compliance is not necessarily going to be all that high in the short run. Uh, so, as I say, it's partly a matter of um, uh, encouraging people to think about this as a legitimate kind of a tax to levy, which increases the social social acceptability of it, which makes it easier for governments to levy it. Um, but we do need to tackle these things. Uh, whether the Americans are going to react in a negative way uh, or not really seems to depend on which way the political wind is blowing. Uh, they can choose to pick up cudgels on this if they want. Uh, but I think in, uh, in any kind of sort of level-headed discussion of, of international tax policy, it's generally accepted that, uh, you know, governments are trying to tax in neutral ways within their economies uh, and that it's a legitimate thing if you've got a value-added tax, for example, or a sales tax, that you're going to try and levy it on everybody and not have people um, getting around it because of a new mode of delivery. The shadow budget also calls on Ottawa to be accountable in many different ways, particularly when we get a budget projection, when we're told it's going to cost one thing, and then we find out that the spending was nowhere near those budget projections, there doesn't seem to be uh, any cause and effect to that. There doesn't seem to be any um, implication for a parliamentarian who says, yes, we'll spend this, then they spend more. Uh, this is also a tree you've been barking up quite some time. Well, it is a tree that we've been barking up for quite some time, and I want to uh, uh, maybe uh, obliquely claim some credit, but also uh, give credit uh, to the federal government and other governments uh, in that over time they've responded to some of the criticisms that uh, we've been making, and it's been a bit of a personal uh, issue for me. If you go back 20 years, uh, the federal budget didn't look like the financial statements. There were these differences in accounting that made it not at all straightforward to compare the budget projections with what they publish at the end of the year. And I'm very happy to say that the federal government is now one of the governments in Canada that publishes budgets that do match its financial statements quite straightforwardly. So at a, at a very high level, and that's where you have to start, it's possible in the case of the federal government to compare recent budgets, uh, compare them to the results. When the budget gets published, uh, it's very straightforward to look at what the budget projections imply relative to what's expected for the year about to end. Uh, so that's that's a very important starting place. Um, and I only wish that were true, for example, at the municipal level where it spectacularly isn't. The disconnect at the federal level comes in a, in a couple of ways. Um, one of them is just a, a straightforward issue of presentation. Federal budgets have kind of metastasized into these hundreds of page long documents where the key numbers are buried, uh, not even uh, deep within the main document, but in an annex. And, and to me, this is a bit disrespectful of people generally. I mean, a budget is an economic document. The centerpiece of a budget is the fiscal plan. Why wouldn't you do what many provinces do and put it right at the front? Put it in plain language, plain numbers that anybody can uh, see right off the top. And there's inertia here at the federal government. They could easily fix that, and I hope that they will. And in our shadow budget, we make a bit of a show of ensuring that the absolute central numbers are right up front where nobody could miss them and where it's really easy to understand what you're seeing. The second disconnect is a bit more complicated because it involves the way parliament approves the money. And uh, historically, at the federal level, as in many other places, 
Uh, the estimates that authorize spending on particular programs have been done on a cash basis, and modern accounting is not on a cash basis. Uh, modern accounting is on an accrual basis, and uh, that's entirely appropriate. Uh, and the, that's how the budget's done, that's how the financial statements are done, but the estimates are still on a cash basis. And the the current, uh, the, the Liberal government, the previous one in their election campaign and uh, uh, leading up to the 2015 election, had to my great pleasure and, and surprise, committed that the estimates would be presented on a basis consistent with the budget. Uh, and to see that in election platform, I thought was very promising. They attempted to implement that. They got blowback from the opposition because in order to reconcile the one with the other, you had to have an, a reconciliation amount. And the opposition seized on that and said, this is a slush fund. This is a whole lot of money that you're not telling us how you plan to spend. And I worry that they may have backed off that a little. And so what I'm hoping to encourage is to say, uh, you know, don't get put off permanently by that. Uh, we're seeing at the provincial level as well, these movements to ensure that an MP who cares about the fiscal plan uh, and wants to make sure that what she or he is voting is consistent with the fiscal plan can look at a set of numbers and say, okay, I understand how this all fits together. Uh, the federal government should have another run at it. Uh, not get put off by the sort of political opportunism of criticizing the way that they did it. Of course, to make numbers reconcile, you have to have, you have to explain how they reconcile. So we think that at the federal level, it would be helpful if MPs were able at a glance in one easily accessible table to see how what they're being asked to vote on at estimates time is consistent or not uh, with the fiscal plan. And uh, one of the things that we encourage the government to do is just make th make those numbers uh, uh, easily reconcilable. Um, if if anyone who's listening to this doubts that that's important, I invite uh, uh, this skeptical person to attend a meet a budget meeting of their municipal council, uh, where the numbers that the councillors are being asked to consider have absolutely no discernible relationship to what the city published at the end of the previous year or what it will publish at the end of that year. Uh, they cannot participate intelligently in those debates because the starting point is a set of numbers that just simply don't add up properly. Uh, so it's not appropriate to do that. And at the federal level, we think that they can take another run at this and end up with a cleaner situation. Let's bring this back to uh, tax revenue coming in the door, how to increase it. And I suppose it's also full circle back to addressing coronavirus, because we know the Americans are actively discussing major uh, tax cuts at the corporate level, this is one of your recommendations as well, lowering the corporate income tax rate from 15% to 13%. Does that figure need to be revised again in light of what we may see Washington do? Well, we certainly want to keep an eye on what Washington does. It's because of them that we went to the accelerated capital cost allowances, which um, were, were helpful for business investment. Uh, possibly not as decisive as they might have been if we had done them on our own. It was clearly a kind of a, a, a move to protect us from losing investment across the border that otherwise would have fled. Similarly, if they do anything to their headline corporate income tax rate, we need to pay attention to that. It matters for investment in the short run because it changes the calculus of a business that's thinking about putting a, a building in place or a piece of machinery in place. Um, but it also increasingly we're aware of the way uh, money can move around the world uh, if your headline corporate income tax rate is higher than those of other jurisdictions, uh, every incentive works against um, activity and income being recorded in your jurisdiction. The focus of a lot of people's attention is on small business tax rates. 
And that's an area where there's less concern about what happens uh, on a cross-border basis. Uh, and a bit more concern, at least here at the CD Hounds, do we worry when the small business rate starts to get way out of line with the with the general corporate income tax rate? Because what that does is it creates a bit of a welfare wall, if you like, or a, a marginal effective tax rate that discourages businesses from growing. So if they are looking at any measures like that, I hope that they would be explicitly temporary uh, and not build into the system something that has caused quite a bit of grief for us. Uh, because it's not only this welfare wall, it's also that as the small business rate uh, gets increasingly out of line with the personal, uh, the top personal income tax rate, which this government has shown a bit of a proclivity to increase, uh, then it creates all sorts of incentives for people to uh, recognize their income in their business, uh, not outside it. And the government uh, tried to address that with some rather uh, heavy-handed moves in the, the, the previous federal government, the previous liberal government. Uh, and we don't want to see we don't want to see them going there again. So anything on the small business front, I think it really has to be tied very tightly to what is happening uh, in the economy, the fears of the coronavirus, the possibility that small businesses are going to have some liquidity problems. Maybe you can make uh, GST remittances a little more relaxed. Um, but I'd be very careful about any general fiscal move in order to support demand. I'd be much more in favor of seeing. Uh, the federal government focus more on mobilizing resources, uh, things that only fiscal policy can do, particularly on the health front, and, uh, and, and let central banks uh, do some of the heavy lifting that they've already shown they're willing to do when it comes to supporting demand. You mentioned the top personal income tax threshold. You're looking to double that to boost the tax base. Help me understand how that works. The top income tax rate is a very high profile thing for sort of populists on the left uh, who who really like to see high taxes on what they call the rich. I mean, there is an important distinction between people who have high incomes and people who are rich. Uh, some people who are rich don't necessarily have very high current incomes. Uh, some people who have high current incomes aren't yet rich. They may be trying to become rich. Um, but the key focus of our concern here is really about Canada's position in the battle for talent. Uh, if for political reasons, we have to have uh, top marginal rates that are 50% or maybe even a little bit over it, then what you can still do is you can raise the threshold at which that applies. And when people are wondering which side of the border to work on, if you're a, a company trying to recruit talent, if you're an entrepreneur wondering which side of the border to be on, especially once you've started to make some money, uh, then those calculations matter. Uh, it's one thing to be paying 50% uh, plus on income that's more than half a million a year uh, as opposed to 250000 a year. So if the federal government uh, 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 is in the mood to uh, enhance Canada's ability to attract talent, and by that we mean uh, people who are successful, people who they're highly educated, they've already had some success in their careers, uh, then this would be a very uh, valuable thing for them to do. And this is a fairly elastic tax base. High income people have options. Uh, they can choose where to live, as I've been emphasizing already. Uh, they can choose how, and to some extent, how to uh, earn their incomes, how to time their incomes. And as a result, we think that for the federal government to cut it's, uh, uh, or to raise the threshold rather at which the high income rate kicks in probably doesn't cost dollar for dollar what a static calculation would suggest. 
Um, we see that when uh, governments raise taxes on high earners, uh, they tend to reap less than what the static calculation would suggest. Um, when you cut tax rates on high earners, you tend to um, lose less money than you uh, would calculate from a static calculation. And one of the things that we emphasize in this uh, shadow budget is that the provinces, they're taxing the same base. Uh, and when governments are competing with each other to raise taxes on high income earners, they're squeezing each other's revenue bases. Uh, if the revenue base shrinks, it's not just the government that levied the tax that suffers, it's the other level of government as well. Um, the same thing works the other way around. If the federal government were to reduce its tax take on high income earners, the provinces would probably see their tax take from those same earners go up at the same time. And uh, the provinces can always use a little extra fiscal room because they're the ones that have the really severe pressures, particularly on their health care budgets. And then on a more longer term basis, as we look to address the productivity and the growth challenge in this upcoming federal budget, you're trying to support capital investment in the economy by suggesting a transition to a neutral corporate tax system over time. What does that look like? Well, there is more than one way to do it. But the absolutely critical consideration here is that uh, the corporate income tax system is quite punitive towards investment uh, by continuing to tax uh, all the profits from an investment uh, indefinitely into the future. And people have often remarked on the difficulties of, um, of, of promoting growth when you've got a corporate income tax that is um, really driving quite a considerable wedge between the return that an investor uh, is going to make on, on a project uh, and what will be left over after tax. Now, I'll, I'll mention that the corporate income tax is not the only relevant consideration here. Uh, there are a, a number of other taxes, especially the profit insensitive taxes that matter. And if you're thinking of uh, regulatory reforms that can reduce costs, those are also extremely powerful. So the corporate income tax isn't the only game in town. But what we've seen around the world and the U.S. tax reform was a major step in this direction uh, quite recently, is that governments are lowering their corporate income tax rates. They've realized that this is a particularly damaging kind of tax. Uh, it's much better to encourage investment uh, and then that attracts people. And then you can tax people both on their incomes and on their consumption to pay for the services that the people themselves are enjoying. So in what are the alternatives to uh, the corporate income tax? Uh, one of the uh, fairly straightforward ones that a lot of people have looked at with interest is sort of a more of a cash flow tax complements your value added tax. Um, now, getting there from here is complicated. And in our fiscal plan, um, we don't build anything in explicitly for that because it's going to be a long-term transition. Uh, it's something for which you want to give people a lot of notice that you're thinking about doing it. And there's more than one way to structure this. Uh, but here again is an area where we think it makes sense for uh, governments to lead uh, in the conversation. Uh, to encourage people to think about some of the problems with our current tax system and ways that we could rationalize it over the longer haul. Because in Canada, we do not have very healthy rates of business investment, and they've been quite low for a long time now. And it's all very well, and we're, I'm delighted that we're attracting immigrants at the rate that we are. Uh, we seem to be okay at developing our human capital and attracting talent from abroad. Uh, that's all great, but people need tools to work with. People need machinery. They need equipment, they need structures, they need infrastructure, they need software. Uh, and so the corporate income tax, the way it's currently structured, is uh, far less encouraging of investment than it could be. 
And uh, it's a longer term plan in the shadow budget. We're not recommending anything in the very short run, uh, but we do think it makes sense for Canadians to be a bit more flexible in their thinking about how to tax business profits, what the appropriate base is, and how to make sure that we're not doing needless damage to our ability to uh, have the capital in place that we need to work with as workers uh, and to grow our productivity over the long run and grow our incomes over the long run. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. He joined us from his Toronto headquarters on Young Street. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.